Hey, it's working first time this time. That's great. Let's, uh, let's get struck straight into our word, shall we? Do you know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only during that person's lifetime. Thus, a married woman is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is discarded from the law concerning the husband. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. In the same way, my friends, you have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in the members to bear fruit for death. But now, we are discharged from the law, dead to that which held us captive, so that we are slaves, not under the, cold, the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. What then should we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity in the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive from the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity in the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So... The law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and just and good. Did what is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, working death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become, sin, might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into slavery under sin. I don't understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good, but in fact it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. Sorry, I've skipped a line. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good, but in fact it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. So, I find it to be a law, that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my innermost self. But I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord.
So then, with my mind, I'm a slave to the law of God, but with my flesh, I'm a slave to the law of sin. Let's pray. Father, we come before you tonight because this is your word. And we are so desperate to know it. It is what gives us life. It is what provides us with the truth that we need. And without it, we cannot know you and we cannot know true life. We cannot be set free from the law, from sin. So, Father, we come before you tonight praying that your Holy Spirit would be here in double portion that we may understand and grasp what it is that your word is saying to us and not just read it and receive it as dry information, but that it might shape our lives, that we may be obedient to you, that we may rejoice in you and give you the glory that you deserve. Father, open our eyes, open our minds and open our hearts tonight and I pray for a season, just for this time, Lord, that you would help us to lay aside the burdens of our own sin and the struggles of our life, Lord, that we might hear in truth what it is that you have to say. I pray that you would be present tonight, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. How many people here tonight are currently in uni or TAFE or school? A few people. Or who has been? At least, everybody. Yeah, that's good. Everyone's been to school. We live in a wonderful country. How good is that feeling when you finish exams at the end of semester or at the end of the year or in year 12? That deep sense of freedom. Finally, the lecturer or the teacher says to you, all right, it's time, lay down your pens. And it's like lead sheets or a ball around your neck falls off and you are free. You're still waiting for results, but for the most part, you are free. And you step outside and the light is brighter. That first sip of beer, depending on how old you were at the time, <laughs> is that much fresher. The music in the car on the way home is that much better. It is wonderful. The world is suddenly a bright place, considering about a week ago, before exams, it was filled with doom and despair. And it was never going to make it, you were never going to make it, but now here you are. Nothing compares though, even that does not compare to the freedom that we have in Jesus. That satisfaction at the end of exam does not compare to the relief that we get through Christ from sin. To be free in Jesus is the best thing, it's better than anything else. In those moments that you place your faith in Jesus, if you remember them, there is a feeling of relief like you would never experience in your life again. Nothing is going to go wrong now. In those few moments, you are on top of the world and you are untouchable. There are no worries. There are no concerns. You have Jesus. You are free from the worries of the future because it is set in stone. You are going to be with him for the rest of eternity and it doesn't matter what comes your way. The very next day, perhaps in the morning, you wake up and it is the day to change your life. You look around your room and perhaps you start to think, okay, we've got a few things I need to get rid of from my old life. Some books, some DVDs, 
things that Christians don't own, things that a man that, or a woman that loves God doesn't possess. So get rid of them. You start the wonderful habits that you're going to keep for the rest of your life, reading your Bible for two to three hours a day, praying for at least twice that. You go out and you tell everyone you know about the freedom that you now have in Jesus, the liberty that you get to enjoy. The holy life is now the life that you are going to live. That is the life for you. The very next day, you start to go around and make those changes. You're going to make Jesus happy now. You're going to live a life that God is proud of. And you are happy doing it. In fact, joy is so quick to you. You delight in it. But perhaps maybe a few days later or a week later, that joy starts to fade a little. It gets a bit harder to get a hold of. In fact, sometimes it seems almost impossible. You've become a little busy and your prayer life has reduced and your Bible reading time has reduced, but at least you're still attending Sunday services. That's pretty good. And then something happens, something that you didn't see coming. You commit a sin, you do something that isn't in the grey area of forgetting to read your Bible and praying. It's something that you know God doesn't like. It is 100% wrong, it's in the black. What do you do? Sins start, questions start to arise inside of your mind. The guilt and the confusion starts to set in. You have no idea why you did it. You don't want to be this person anymore. You thought you were free. You were going to set aside your life now to live a holy life, but now you've committed sin. What happened to the freedom that you had that you were so enraptured by the joy of only a few weeks ago? Where has it gone? Did I do salvation wrong? Am I not saved anymore? Maybe I didn't believe correctly to begin with. Is it all gone? I remember those days like they were yesterday, because they were. In fact, how often I sit there and think to myself, Nat, why the heck have you just done what you've done? This is not who I am anymore. I'm free, I believe in God. Why have I committed this sin? Why have I done this? And I sometimes look at my own hands and you think, you've betrayed me. This isn't who I am in my mind. This isn't what I want. This isn't my desire anymore. And yet here I am doing them. How frustrating, how confusing. This is exactly how every Christian feels frustrated and confused with a question on our minds, am I free or not? Am I free or not? This is exactly the question that Paul is answering in chapter 7, am I free or not? It is a question and a situation that he in his own life has experienced. And he knows that the people he is writing to in the church in Rome are experiencing the exact same thing. Confusion and frustration. And asking that question, am I free or not? 
Paul starts with six verses talking about, first, the freedom that we have in Jesus. The first three verses can look very confused. They look like they're talking about marriage and adultery and divorce and how we should view them. And you might go there for some examples, but it's not why it's there. Paul's not talking about those things. He's instead making sure we understand the type of relationship that we have with the law and the freedom that we now have in Jesus. How we transitioned from being in bondage under the law, stuck with sin and now being with Jesus. He says it looks like marriage. This is the life that you and I used to live before we knew Jesus. It looked like we were married to the law. It wasn't an on-again, off-again relationship, like maybe we'd like to think about it. It wasn't just on weekends that we'd have a relationship with the law and sin. We weren't dating it. We wouldn't just take it out for coffee every now and then. We were married to the law all the time. It was an intimate, personal relationship. And more than that, he's highlighting that that relationship we had wasn't a good one. It was a marriage that brought us to a place where we would sin again and again. Paul says that before we believed in Jesus, we had a passion for sin. Passion means a willingness to suffer to do it. A willingness to suffer for the sake of achieving evil things. That is the life that we used to live. That is a bleak situation. That is the life we had when we were bound to the law and sin before we came to know Jesus, stuck in a bad marriage that had us willing to suffer for the sake of doing bad things. This is the truth, or it still is the truth for some of us. This is the situation. We were trapped. Because the only way to get out of marriage, Paul is making a marriage like this, Paul makes very clear, is death. That doesn't sound like a great option. It is the vows that you take when you do get married, until death does us part. We were stuck in that place. Only death could separate us from the relationship we had in the law. To break the trap that we were in. Then the good news. We came to know Jesus. We came to understand that he died in our place so that we could share in his death and be set free from the relationship that we had in the law. And that is great news. No longer are we bound to things, uh, to doing evil things. No longer are we willing to suffer for the sake of doing evil. But now, instead of having fruit for death, we have fruit for God. A desire to do good works for God. What great news. This is our freedom. And Paul wants us to remember that this is exactly where we are at. This is the freedom that we have. The freedom from the law. And Paul wants us to continue to remember this. But after all the praising over the freedom that we have is done and the hallelujahs have settled down, there is a question remaining that Paul wants to make very clear. 
Did God give us a law that is evil? The law that he's talking about is the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments. Did God give a law to Moses that causes people to sin? Is the law evil? Paul wants to make it really clear. Is the law sin? Paul says, no. Paul spends a lot of time now showing us that the law is not bad. It is not sin and it doesn't cause sin. What it does is reveal sin in our lives. Now, we've probably all had those moments when you are laying in bed at night and whether you're just about to get to sleep or you're already deeply in it and there is a noise that happens somewhere in the house that doesn't belong. It's not the, the fridge, you're used to that. It's not the bubbling fish tank or your eldest daughter talking in her sleep. It's a, it's a sound that doesn't belong. Now, the easiest solution to a sound like that is you get up and you investigate it. Of course, that's not what any of us do. We lay in bed for 10 minutes thinking, if it is thieves, it's better that they take everything and I just get 10 more minutes of sleep. <laughs> but if you were to get up and you turn the light on, the easiest way to investigate that sound is to flick the light on and find out the exact situation in your house. Maybe something fell over. Maybe it's nothing. Maybe it is thieves. But you find out. That is the function of the law. God gave us something that turns the lights on so that we can see inside of our own conscience, inside of our own hearts, that we might have revealed to us what is happening. Paul says, I would not have known my covetousness until the law said, you shall not covet. But more than that, it continues to function in that it reveals our own spiritual state. There are so many movies out and TV shows out at the moment that are all about zombies. This is Paul saying, he turned the light on. The law revealed he was dead. He was looking at himself and he realised, I'm a zombie. I'm getting around, but there is nothing here. But more than that, he also says that the law affords opportunity for sin. How does that work? How is it that he can say that the law, something that is good from God, arouses sin and gives it opportunity? If we go back again to the example and we turn the lights on to find out there are thieves in our house, what does that do? Well, having the lights on makes stealing a heck of a lot easier than doing it in the dark. Sin takes opportunity. And now that the lights are on and the people are aware, sin doesn't have to be quiet about it. It can be loud, make as much noise as possible. In fact, the more threatening, the better. Sin takes opportunity. It makes the most of what it is given and the law provides all that is necessary. Paul says that the law also has this effect on sin. It wakes it up and it increases its activity. In the light of the law, sin kills you. So then, does the law kill you? Is the next question that Paul answers. Does what is good cause what is bad? The answer again is no. 
it is not the light's fault. No one ever blamed the light for murdering someone. It was the murderer. Surprise, surprise. It is sin that murders, not the law. What Paul is doing is making sure in this whole process that we understand it is not God that is committing sin. It is not God that has given us something bad that drives us to sin. God is totally free from guilt and blame. The sin is the thing that is to blame. And it comes hand in hand with the law. It wakes it up and gets it active, but it is not the law's fault and it is not God's. But how does this answer our question about freedom? Am I free or not? Now, I know what Paul has said. He says, I am free from the law. He's made that very clear to begin with. And I'm free from sin. And now I don't blame the law. I don't blame God for sin because I know that the law is good and it is holy. And God only good gives good gifts. But even though Paul has said, I'm free, I still sin. So what do I do with that? Am I free or not? Let me tell you that Paul shares your frustration in these moments. Listen to his words from verse 15 and 19. I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. These are not the words of a man who is at peace with his life. He is frustrated. What am I doing? He has the desire to do what God has given him, the fruit of God, to produce good works. This is what he wants to do with his life now, to live a holy life. And yet Paul, an apostle, finds that he is doing nothing but evil. That his body is doing nothing but evil. And he sits back and looks at his hands and says, you have betrayed me. What is going on? So what hope do we have This is why we are so frustrated. This is the reason. We are torn in two. Paul says that our uh, talking about our freedom, that we... Let's go to verse 14. Forget that I said that sentence. (laughs) Verse 14, Paul says, For talking about our freedom and the law... Uh, was for nothing. Uh, Talking about freedom and law wasn't for nothing. He says in verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into slavery under sin. The freedom that he has been talking about, the freedom from the law and from sin is spiritual freedom. But we are not entirely spiritual, are we? We are also body and flesh, arms and limbs and muscle and blood. Our spirits are free now. 
free from the law. We desire good things. We hunger for holy living. We know that our true satisfaction, true satisfaction in life comes from God and God alone. And that is where we are. Our spirits are free. And all of these things indicate that freedom. But we are not solely spiritual beings. We have flesh and bone and physical bodies. And the freedom that has been won by Jesus, that death that we shared with him, the resurrection and the new life that we have with him, is spiritual. So far. We have been reborn spiritually so far. But our physical bodies have yet to be reclaimed by Jesus. We have not participated in death physically. This is the reason that we are so frustrated. Because our bodies have not yet died to join, to go through the process of being free. But our spirits have. We are torn in two. And so part of us shares in the joys and the freedoms of wanting and desiring God now, hungering to live a holy life. And the other part of us is still chained. The other part of us is still diseased with sin and delights in it. The other part of us is still bound to the law and still sin is continuing to be aroused by our bodies. So what do we do then with the sin that we commit? Paul says in verse 17, But in fact, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. Paul says, you are free. Free from guilt and shame over the sin that we commit. The sin that is being committed is not committed by you, but by sin. By the sin that is in you. Not who you are anymore. It is sin's own fault. You are free and this is who you are now. But you will continue to be frustrated. And Paul is making it very clear that that frustration does not come to an end while we are here on earth. And that is why we are longing for Jesus' return. Paul says that we are free from guilt and shame. We have a new life in Jesus. We have new hope. We have new desires, new joy. We have total freedom. But we are not, at this time, able to totally embrace it yet, though it is guaranteed and it is who we are. It is just a matter of time. And so we continue to desire what is good. And Paul urges us again and again in Romans, do what is good. Because this is who we are now in the freedom. This is who we are now that we have been divorced from law, that we have died to it. Now we are bound to Jesus and as a part of that, we desire what is good. We desire holy works. He says that we now produce fruit for God 
not fruit for death. But we are frustrated because even though we have all those desires and we are told to continue to pursue them, that we can't achieve them yet. So am I free or not? Paul says, yes, you are free. But you must wait a little longer to totally enjoy it. Listen to his words at the end of the chapter and hear his own frustration and then listen to the hope that he leaves us with. The same hope that we need to cling to while we are still living here and cannot fully enjoy our freedom. He says in that verse, Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We are frustrated, but we are not without hope. Jesus is coming. But in the meantime, let us remember that we are free. And despite the sin that we do, it is no longer us who does it, but sin. Let us do all that we can to do good works because that is our desire and who we are now. And the sin that is committed is not to be remembered as yours. Can we get one slide back to see verse 25, please? Uh, one more, that's it. <clears throat> Let's just say all together, verse 25 up to the exclamation point. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That is our hope. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. Lord, giving thanks that we have been reminded of the freedom and who we are. Lord, though we are frustrated, we can still rejoice and hope and long for the day of Christ's return. Lord, I pray for everyone here that they would continue, despite the frustration, to desire and hunger for good works that would be pleasing to you. Lord, that you would continue to set in stone a knowledge of who they are now in the freedom that Jesus has brought them, married to Jesus Christ, bound to him rather than bound to law. Lord, even in those moments where they are frustrated, may their hope remain. May our hope remain that you are returning. That this time is only short. And give thanks and rejoice as we wait for you to come back. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.